editor of Royals Review, and joining me as usual is Sean Newkirk. Sean, how was your uh, Thanksgiving? It's good. I'm still stuffed. You know, I love love Thanksgiving. Second to Christmas for me, but still, gosh, I, I, I just love Thanksgiving food a bunch. So happy, happy holiday. It seemed like turkey got like fell out of favor on Twitter. It seemed like there yeah. was a lot of hot takes about turkey not being uh, very good. I know. And I, I think there are people that just haven't had. They don't know how to cook turkey. Turkey is so freaking good. I don't know what uh, these people are nuts. I, I ah. Anyways, let's let's start the show. I I, I could sit here talking about turkey for hours. <laughs> well, we'll have to have a, a turkey only podcast <laughs> episode just for you. Uh, also joining us is Matthew Lamar. Matthew, would you have a favorite Thanksgiving Day staple? Um, I'm definitely on Team Ham. Uh, knowing what I know now about Sean's turkey opinions, I'm not going to say what I was thinking earlier. Um, ham is good too. Like a really good ham, like a like a glaze, like honey ham is, is just it's it's excellent. And I think you know um, whether you like or dislike turkey, has sometimes having a ham you know available even is is a nice uh, you know change of pace. So I am definitely on team ham when it comes to Thanksgiving. But my wife and I, uh, my wife who is pescatarian, we had salmon this Thanksgiving because we were just at home, and that is very non traditional. But you know what, we liked it, so it was worth it. I was wondering how many families were going to do like non-traditional dishes. I mean, I even suggested, I was like to my wife, I was like, let's do Chinese food this year. <laughs> it's a, we'd enjoy it a lot, a lot. You know, I like turkey, but uh, it doesn't make sense to like make it for, you know, five people. I don't, I don't think at least. Um, ham at least I think makes for better leftovers because I like ham sandwiches in the days after Thanksgiving or Christmas or Easter, whenever you make a ham. Turkey, uh, it, I don't know. It gets, after the, first day i think it gets pretty dry and it's a little harder to save for leftovers but uh yeah salmon that's a that's an interesting one i i don't i want i'm curious how many families went that direction but uh yeah a lot of hot takes on thanksgiving this year but uh you know we don't have to debate turkey versus ham all day because we actually have a lot of baseball news uh to catch up on uh the royals striking the hot stove while it's hot uh one of the first teams really to make a move this offseason uh, officially signing now left-handed pitcher Mike Miner to a two-year deal. If you, uh, if you, that name sounds familiar, you may remember that Mike Miner pitched for the Royals in 2017. Uh, back then, he was a reliever. The Royals actually signed him in 2016 when he was recovering from shoulder surgery, kind of hoping to help him uh, recover from that, and they eased him back uh, as a reliever. And he had a really good year and then went on to Texas and uh, had a pretty decent run in uh, with the Rangers, uh, was an all-star in 2019 with a 3.59 ERA, although he did regress uh, in 2020 and struggle with a 5.56 ERA with Texas and Oakland. Uh, two years, $18 million with a $13 million club option uh, and a $1 million buyout. And in case you think that uh, Dayton Moore has lost his touch for mutual options, that club option actually becomes a mutual option if he is traded. So, of course, we have to include that as well. Uh, Sean, you know, we've seen a couple of pitchers uh, sign on the free agent market. Minor uh, joins guys like Charlie Morton, uh, Drew Smiley, uh, Robbie Ray. Con- considering what those guys got, and also considering it's early in the offseason, an offseason where we expect many teams to kind of go into austerity mode, what do you think of uh, the Royals getting Minor for what is essentially two years and $19 million? Yeah, you know, a lot of times in the offseason um... – when I uh, you'll see a signing, I like to kind of quickly um, look at what the fan graph, like crowdsourcing had 
uh, and they had it pretty much spot on. I think it was, I want to say 20 million. Um, two, two, two years, 20 million, I believe, is what the crowdsource came up with. Um, so, I mean, it was right there. It's kind of interesting. You know, he was really, really good in 18. Um, got some Cy Young kind of hype. Um, and arguably, you know, could have had a case to even win it. Uh, 19 was obviously not quite as good. You know, he's over whatever he was. He was 31, I think, at the time. Um, and then, you know, last year, he looked a lot better from uh, war from a war perspective than maybe his ERA would show. He had a 5.56 ERA, but he had a .9 war, um, which doesn't seem like much, but over 50 innings, um, it's roughly two wins. Or excuse me, it's roughly uh, four wins, sorry. Um, now, he did lose two miles per hour on his fastball, uh, on his, his average velocity, so that's concerning, and he'll be 33. So, I don't know. I, I think of a lot of things from a risk kind of reward perspective. I think there is some reward in minor. I don't know if the risk is equivalent to 18 million or call it 19 with the $1 million um, buyout of the mutual option of the, whatever it is, the, the third year option. Um, so call it 19, but I don't know. I, I guess, I guess I don't hate it, but it's a lot of risk. And I think I was a little torn off by the fact that they, um, they're going to commit to have him in the rotation. I think that was also concerning as well, because if there's one thing, and obviously we keep talking about this every single podcast, it's the it's playing time is not freely available as it has been. And the rotation definitely has some other candidates I'd like to see in there, particularly, you know, guys like uh, Kowar and Lynch. Um, I'd rather see them than Mike Miner, to be honest. But I don't know. I guess we'll see what happens. But they're fairly committed, it sounds like, to having them in the rotation. So, And yeah. for $19 million, you know, he needs to be. Yeah, I don't. I don't think you pay a reliever, you know, nineteen million dollars unless he's like a, a guy that's pretty established and and pretty pretty solid in the back of that rotation or back of that bullpen. Um, yeah, the the nineteen million I think is a, like a smidge higher than I probably was expecting. I think I predicted like sixteen million uh, over two years, uh, but it doesn't seem. It doesn't strike me as a, like a huge overpay or anything like that. I think with pitchers, you know, if you can keep them at two years, three year deals, that's that's usually pretty good you know, pretty good deal because most likely he's going to be pretty decent at least one of those years. It's not like you're signing Ian Kennedy to a five-year deal and like you really need him to be good in three of those or three or four of those years to really justify the contract. Like if he's, if Miner's pretty solid in one of those years, like you probably got your money's worth. Uh, and, and like you said, like 2019, he was really, really good. He's probably not going to be that good again. Um, even if he kind of rebounds from his performance this year, which, which was pretty bad. Um, so I, you know, he's probably somewhere in the middle of his 2019, 2020 performance, uh, unless unless 2020 Whoa. is like some sort of evidence that he's he's hit a wall or he has some sort of injury. Um, you know, he should kind of bounce back a little bit and be like a one to two win above replacement pitcher, which that you'll get your money's worth, I think, for that kind of contract. So, you know, um, you, know you mentioned the the Fangraft crowdsourcing. You know, they ranked him as the 27th best free agent on the market, pretty high compared to where the Ringer and MLB trade rumors had him. They had him. Um, MLB trade rumors had him as the 40th best uh, free agent. The Ringer had him as the 37th best free agent. Uh, but but Fangraphs is a little bit higher on him. They had him right behind Drew Smiley, who got $11 million from the Braves. So thinking that Smiley's an $11 million guy and um, and Miner's more of a $9 million guy, or $8.5 million guy, um, no, no, I guess $9.5 million guy, um, that that kind of makes sense with this market, I guess, and and like I said, getting him on a two-year deal keeps the obligation kind of short. Uh, Matthew, what was kind of your impression when you saw 
the Royals had signed Mike Miner, and do you think how do you think he kind of fits in this rotation? I think I was I was at least expecting a deal similar to this. I think given the collection of pitchers that the Royals had uh, as candidates for the starting rotation, I think it was pretty obvious that they were going to look to acquire a veteran, and it just happened to to end up being minor. Now, on on Miner's part, I think that the Royals are kind of banking that 2020 was a little bit of an aberration. Um, And to be perfectly honest, it was. Pitchers didn't get their normal routine set up. Uh, Everybody was thrown off. You know, there were a lot of arm injuries that happened um, and and kind of odd injuries uh, that happened this year. And a lot of them happened to pitchers just because their, you know, their their prep and their – working their workouts and everything just got thrown so out of whack. And if you're a position player, you know, that that's not that big of a deal. Obviously your timing gets thrown off, but as a pitcher, you know, that could, that could cause some serious arm damage if you don't ramp up or ramp down correctly. And it was, it was just kind of a mess this year. So I think the Royals are banking that uh, his dip down in terms of ERA uh, and runs allowed performance this year was, was, you know, not indicative of his true talent. And to be fair, I think that there is some um, truth behind that. You don't really have to go digging very far. Um, in 2019, his FIP fielding independent pitching was uh, 4.25. And in 2020, despite a drop in velocity um, and a big spike in ERA, it wasn't very much higher. It was at 4.64. So that's, you know, less than half a run difference between those years. Um, and if you look even further at his ex-FIP, which uh, um, basically uh, standardizes home run rate, he was at 4.6 in 2019 and 4.5 in 2020. So there are some underlying metrics that suggest that he was a very similar pitcher than he was to what he was in 2019. So, you know, I, on, on that perspective, you know, I, th- I think you could easily justify uh, the signing on from the Royals, Royals perspective, you know, is he going to be the, the most amazing pitcher? Probably not, but he's a guy that the Royals need because if you take a look at their rotation, right, you got Duffy, who's probably a league average starter at this point in his career. That's perfectly fine. You've got Bubich and Singer who are uh, definitely the upside players there. And then you have Keller who is the, at the moment, the best guy on staff. And then Junis, but Junis as the fifth starter was always kind of the guy that probably is a bullpen guy long-term um, with his slider. And Miner allows them to shift Junis to the bullpen full-time, which I think is the best way to maximize his talent. So you're looking at a rotation of Duffy and Miner as the veterans, uh, and then you're looking at Keller and Bubich and Singer as the young guys. And to those who are you know, maybe um, apprehensive that this won't allow for a spot for uh, Kawar or Lynch or even Lacey, depending on how fast he rises. I think it's probably worth mentioning to, to pump the brakes a little bit here. Uh, Lynch hasn't pitched in double A, neither has Lacey. Kawar has a little bit, but none of the three of them are sure slam dunk uh, things. You know, they don't have a real long minor league track record. And I think that while, yeah, sure, if pushed, they probably could make the jump to the majors like Bubich and Singer did, I think it's probably best to just let them advance at their own pace a little bit. And the other thing is that 
yeah, there might not any be, be any spots at the beginning of the year, but pitchers get injured, things happen, there's underperformance. There will be a spot later on. Every team in baseball uses more than five starting pitchers. I would not be surprised at all if Cora and Lynch made their debuts this year. It's just probably not going to be out of the gate, and that's perfectly fine. The Royals are going to need six, seven, eight guys to make at least a couple of starts for them this year. And to not force their young starting pitchers to a position where they have to do that at the beginning of the year, I think that's really what the Royals were looking for here. No, I totally agree. I think that that's kind of the thinking behind what they're doing. And, and I yeah, it wouldn't surprise me now if like Lynch and Coar pretty much spend the whole season in the minor leagues just to get their get their seasoning. But also, I wonder if, you know, there's also maybe a little bit of like, we don't want all of our pitchers on the same um, kind of timetable as far as like arbitration and free agency. Like, we'd like to stagger that a little bit if we can so that guys are hitting free agent at different points. And we don't have Singer and Bubich and Coar and Lynch, all free agents in the same year. Um, I also wonder if it's possible that one of them now becomes trade bait for a hitter, a young hitter, because I thought it was a little curious that, um, you know, they're, they're going to spend, this is the first significant free agent they've signed since 2017 when they signed Jason Hamill. And they did it on the pitching side, which you look at this team and the pitching looks pretty good for the future. It's the hitting it looks, you know, you've got a couple of decent hitters and then like a lot of black holes in the lineup. I thought maybe, you know, maybe they would, if they were going to spend some money, it would be on a bat and maybe they still will, but I was a little surprised they didn't go in that direction, Sean. Um, I, I guess in your mind, is signing a guy like Miner the right, I guess, strategy for a team in the position the Royals are in right now? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I, w- I would rather have given a shot. I mean, they're obviously operating under the assumption, um, and gosh, something, something, oh, it, it was this minor sign, but it was for the DJ. I was thinking something reminded me of this kind of idea a bit ago. Um, the run of the idea that, or at least Dave Moore has come out and said it as such that they're going to compete. I don't know. That word means different things to different people, but to me, compete means assume that you're going to be in for one of the playoff spots or you're going to compete for one of those spots, be it the wild card or be it the division title. Um, they are under that assumption. And so minor makes sense in that, in that scenario. Right. Um, they think that, you know, rather than wait and develop guys that like a co or lunch, wait, rather than wait and develop them and see what they've got, give them their 180 innings of ups and downs, um, get a guy who's, you know, good now, at least average or so now, um, and, and try and compete. The Michael A. Taylor signing, I think it was pretty much his classic Dayton. Um, our friend of the show, Gopher Balls, had said uh, same thing where, like, it was kind of like we want to add on base guys, but then they signed Michael Taylor. It's like, well, you know, I, I think we all saw this one coming, and I know a lot of people would rather give uh, time to someone like uh, Oliveras or something, and then it's still possible. Um, but I think that. One of them is classic Dayton more. It's the Taylor signing than I think the minor one makes sense given their objective. So, again, I don't really hate either one, but the Taylor one I could I could live without. I mean, it's just like Chris Owens. It's just like all the kind of other signings they've kind of done in the past. And it's like, okay, I guess. Um, but we've all seen how these, you know, have turned out for the most part. Yeah, let's turn to the Taylor signing now. You mentioned the Royals did sign Michael Taylor, who was actually outrighted off the Washington Nationals roster at the end of the year. 
uh, they, the Royals went ahead and signed him to a, a guaranteed one-year major league uh, deal for $1.75 million plus incentives. Uh, he had spent parts of the last seven seasons with the Nationals. Seems like he was a fan favorite there. Had a pretty good attitude. Um, great defense from what I've he- heard from a lot of their fans. Had some big postseason moments for them, including a, a grand slam off Wade Davis in the uh, playoffs at one point. Uh, but well, it wasn't much of a hitter. He had 237, 291 on base percentage, as you mentioned. He wasn't wasn't really an on base guy. Uh, pretty pretty decent power for a reserve guy though, and he has some speed. But he did strike out 31 percent of the time. Uh, Matthew, I know the the outfield uh, is a little thin right now. Alex Gordon retired. They kind of had a mix and match of guys last year. Uh, you know, we assume Whit Merrifield will be out there. Uh, Edward Olivares uh, and French Cordero will be in the mix. Do they need someone like Michael Taylor? He's pushing almost 30. Does he really fit into a rebuild? Well, it's a one-year deal. I And the money is basically, you know, maybe $1.2 million more than what the league minimum is next year, which is basically nothing. You know, he'll he'll take, take up less than 2% of the Royals payroll. Uh, and like I said, it's a one-year deal. So it, it's, it's really impossible to be, like, really super angry or super excited for that matter. About, some people you know, were though. <laughs> deal. Yeah, some people really were, which you know, I I'm I'm glad that people are are passionate about it. But <laughs> I, I I think I think the correct move is like, yeah, it's it's a very Dayton Moore kind of kind of move. But I, if you think about it, and you take a look at the stats, the Royals were not a good defensive team last year they were like a terrible defensive team but i wrote something i don't know a few months ago and i pointed out that one of the reasons why the royals have been so bad over the last couple of years is they stopped being good at defense and i think i looked i looked this up yesterday the royals were like fifth or sixth worst in defensive run saved and outfield defensive run saved just last year and that's with alex gordon so they definitely have you know a an opportunity to improve on the defensive side of the ball. It's not like they are the best defensive team uh, or the best defensive outfield. Like they were bad last year. And I think the Royals have, have, from a fan perspective, have kind of been coasting along as the team that plays good defense, but they were, they were really not last year. So if you, if you listen to what Dayton Moore has to say about Michael Taylor, he basically said, you know, look, we, we want to have premier, defense in the outfield and that's what they got in him um i also do think that it that it probably signals an end for bubba starling because if bubba starling was anywhere close to you know even what michael taylor had done the last couple of years he would just be that internal guy and you know how much they love giving internal guys uh you know playing time so i think that this probably signals the end for bubba starling but i mean you never know uh again people People get injured. Things happen. Um, I personally am not super um, high on Edward Olivares. I think he could be something, but I think Franchi Cordero is the real one to really look out for. I don't think Olivares is necessarily super exciting. Um, so I'm not really hugely unhappy if Michael Taylor gets some playing time that Olivares would have. So eh, it's it's just kind of like... It's a like you said, it's a classic date date and move. Um, and let me, um, if you allow me, a, a dramatic reading, not so dramatic reading. Um, but this piece, police raid home of local crazy utility player guy, was written on our site in 2013. 
And this is an excerpt from it. And you could um, easily think that this is talking about Dayton Moore today. Kansas City psychologist Dave Leonard describes Moore's behavior as showing the classic symptoms of low-value hoarding syndrome. Some people would look at Moore's behavior and be puzzled by it. After all, why hoard something of so little value when you can easily get another one? But LVHS sufferers don't see it that way. People like Dayton believe that this utility player might someday turn into something of value, like kind of like that old painting in your grandma's attic that is actually an original Rembrandt. He also sees himself as a utility whisperer, that he is the one who can give meaning and dignity back to the lives of these utility players. And what's just really funny about this this piece, which is a satire, obviously, is it just keeps giving. Like, I, I you, what did you guys think of when when Moore said, "Oh, Michael Taylor still has, you know, still has upside. He still has promise. He's like, he's almost 30. That's it's, it's classic, Dayton. That's that, that's all there is. He's to say. older than Jorge Soler. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I, I guess I'm not. You know, it's not really worth getting upset about. I mean, like, that'd be kind of silly. And I, I want to see how this fits into the bigger picture of like, okay, what other moves do they make? What does the outfield look like, you know, come April? But uh, yeah, and, and Taylor seems like a, a guy that's easy to read for. And I, I think I think you're right. It's good to like look for, you know, value on, on defense and try to upgrade the defense as much as you can. Um, and maybe he just ends up being a fourth outfielder who gets like 300 plate appearances if that. Um, but, you know, they're talking about him – you know, getting a chance to compete for the center field, starting center fielder job. He's talking about like he can cut down on his strikeouts by swinging more, I guess, with two strikes. So, uh, you know, I, he kind of is what he is. I mean, he's a like I think he'd be a good, like, useful bench player for a lot of teams, uh, and hopefully that's what his role will be here. Um, so, you know, I, I'll, I guess I'll wait and see what they end up doing with the rest of the outfield. Uh, it, you know, it kind of sounds like. They're not necessarily done. Uh, Sean, he, you know, Dayton Moore said he is still looking at different opportunities for the team. Uh, he, but he, he says, quote, we're focused on a middle of the order bat. We're continuing to be able to lengthen out our lineup a little bit. Do you see Dayton Moore uh, going out and making another move here, especially for a bat? And where would, where would that bat play at this point? Yeah, I mean, if he's talking about lengthening the lineup, maybe we're talking about getting some taller guys in there. You know, I mean, this... <laughs> We've had short guys. We've got Nicky Lopez, uh, you know, Witt's not that tall. I don't know. Uh, so, you know, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm all for making, I'm all for making moves if you think it improves the team. But I mean, we've got, uh, we, I keep, man, I keep, it's like a broken record going back to this, but I'm just, I just keep saying there's just no, I mean, there's no room for guys that it's, there's kind of, I think of it, there's two different kind of types of rosters, right? There's a roster like um, like the Dodgers, where it's like there's just no room. You can't improve for the most part over any one of those spots, you know, reasonably. It, almost no one you're going to sign is going to be better, and it's just you're so jammed. And matter of fact, they even have time even sneaking in some good guys at times to, to bat. Um, and then you've got rosters kind of like the Royals, where it's like, you know, there's maybe only one or two like actually good hitters in there, but there's a bunch of guys that are interesting that you still want to try out. And those two rosters make sense depending on where you are on the win curve. If you're the Dodgers, then yeah, I mean, you're in a good spot because you're expecting to win 95 games and you want to have a loaded lineup. Um, the Royals are more expected. I think personally are expected to win 70 ish, um, give or take. And so they have the right type of roster 
for a experimental kind of okay let's see what we have type and you know if they went out and signed justin turner like okay that would be interesting you know good player but like I'd rather take a shot on like Eddie Rosario, who's just uh, outrighted today, um, or you know, like when Jerks and Profar was a free agent. Like that, those are kind of the ones I'm thinking of makes sense. Michael A. Taylor doesn't really make sense in that in in that sense, um, and, and neither would I, I, I don't know just some random vet. So I mean, I don't disbelieve that they're not done, but I'm wondering at some point you're spending you're kind of just spending money to 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 spend money. I mean, and obviously that's never necessarily been the Royals way, but it's like, are you going to go sign a first baseman and then not have anywhere for Dozier or Solaire at DH? I mean, it's just kind of, it's a little cramped and it's cramped in kind of a good way. When you, when you think about where they are um, in respect to their expectations. Now, let me take that back where they are in respect to my expectations of what the team will do. The team has obviously much higher expectations this year than I think uh, they should. Yeah, and I wonder if they're kind of maybe waiting for the non-tender, uh, non-tenders to start happening, which will happen, I guess, after Wednesday evening. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about the Royals' decisions on that a little bit later. But, um, you know, I, I think we're going to see a lot of solid players get non-tendered this week uh, just because of the economics around baseball. And, and maybe the Royals are waiting to kind of pounce one of those guys that, you know, frankly are going to be a little bit younger than some of the other free agents that are available right now. Eddie Rosario, again, like you said, that could be another intriguing opportunity. So... I wouldn't surprise me if they go out and try to sign a guy like that. Um, and I, I kind of see what they're doing as far as like improving. I don't, I think, you know, I th- when you say, you know, I know Dayton put, gives lip service to like, we're going to compete. And some people interpret that as like, we're going to go try to contend. I don't think that's quite what he means. I think he means like, we're going to compete like on a daily basis and we're going to, you know, grind it out. And, uh, you know, if we win, maybe we'll win 74 games, maybe we'll win 88 games. But, you know, we're at least going to be competitive. Not, we're not going to just totally roll over kind of like the Baltimore Orioles, frankly, have been doing the last couple of years. I don't expect I don't think they even they expect them to be necessarily a contending team I, or maybe they can they expect to be a team that is probably going to be a 78 win team. But if some guys develop faster than they expect, if some things bounce their way, maybe they are on the periphery of contention. I think they they would they, you know, that would be like the best case scenario scenario. So. Signing guys like Mike Miner uh, and, and maybe even Michael Taylor makes some sense in that regard, I guess, because I think they do want to improve at the very least, and especially with these young pitchers coming up. I don't think they want them coming up to a team that's just, like, god-awful. So some of these signings, I think, make sense in that regard. Uh, you know, you talk about spending money, and that's not really the Royals' way. I do think it's interesting that John Sherman and his ownership group, you know, came into uh, owning a baseball team at really the worst possible time. Uh, you know, they didn't make any money. Uh, you know, they, they just spent a billion dollars purchasing a team in 2019. They walk into 2020. They can't have any fans. Uh, now, they do get a better TV deal, although it's maybe not quite as lucrative as we maybe thought um, uh, initially. And so they don't get the fan, the revenue from the fans. Uh, I know payrolls were cut this year because of the shortened season anyway, but, you know, almost certainly they lost quite a bit of money this year. And they could have said, you know, between that, the pandemic, and the fact that they're still still rebuilding, they could have said, you know what, we're just going to play it close, uh, put a, keep payroll low, we're not quite ready yet, you know, maybe in a year we'll be in a better financial situation, we'll be in a, uh, you know, our, our team will be more competitive and we'll spend then. 
Instead, they go out and 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 Mike Miner, as of December first, is the highest other than the guys that accepted their qualifying offers. He's the highest paid free agent in baseball right now. Uh, so you know they're they're at least trying to make moves here. Matthew, like, what does that tell us anything about John Sherman yet, or is it kind of too early to say? I think it probably tells us a little bit about John Sherman. I think that the that it tells us that he is willing to. Uh, not be a, a Scrooge about it, which is something, right? There are some owners who are just penny pinchers and they just don't want to spend their money and they can't spend their money and they, you know, hem and haw about spending money. I'm referring to the Tampa Bay Rays who, yeah. but, you know, and the Oakland Athletics for that matter. Both teams just, just refuse to spend any kind of legitimate money, uh, but are well run enough that they continue to do pretty well. So money isn't the, the end all be all. But I, I, I think that John Sherman's uh, willingness to green light Dave Moore to sign Mike Miner probably means that he's not going to be a Scrooge about it on one hand. But on the other hand, I don't know if fans really realize just how good of a payroll situation the Royals are in. So prior to minor, uh, for next year, the Royals had about $30 million uh, tied up in Danny Duffy and Salvador Perez. Um, and that was like 40% of their you know projected payroll for next year um, with their arbitration cases and filling out the roster with league minimum players. In 2022, so the year after next, again, prior to minor, they had $2.75 million total in guaranteed money committed. Uh, Duffy and Perez obviously were free agents after next year, um, but they're probably not signing back at $30 million you know, combined um, if they sign back at all. Um, and the Royals just, you know, they, they, they didn't have any big contracts on on record for uh 2022 or beyond really so it kind of makes sense that they're going to spend a little bit of that money for 2022 um when when duffy and perez fall off the payroll because if they didn't and they don't really have guys who are going to command a lot of money coming up like this isn't a hosmer kane moose situation where they're all hitting arbitration at the same time and making you know 10 million dollars a piece you know, Montezzi could make some money based on what he does next year. Dozier maybe a little bit, but neither of them have like a really super long track record and they're only in the second year of arbitration in 2022 anyways. All of that is just to say that if the Royals didn't make any signings in 2022, they could possibly have entered the season with a payroll under $50 million, which is very, very low in uh, today's, you know, modern baseball and might be the lowest in the game or the second lowest in the game. So on one hand, yes, it's nice to see that Sherman greenlit a signing for minor, but on the other hand, the Royals are in such a good payroll position that it makes sense that they would spend it on, on something on somebody. And we still don't know to the extent of how much they are willing to spend, right? If they come out and they sign another person for uh, 18 or $19 million, or even if they sign someone for like $30 million, like Jackie Bradley jr, which we keep discussing or, or somebody else that I think is going to be the real signifier that something is going to change. Uh, but on Sherman's uh, on Sherman, Sherman's point of view, you know, like you said, Max, he's he's getting the TV 
you know, the increased TV value. And I think probably at some point next year with vaccine news as it is, they're expecting to have some fans next year, right? And for third, I, it, you got to think that they're going to um, make uh, some expansion money with some new teams in the next five years or so. I, I think that that is way overdue and the owners are going to be clamoring for it. So I'm not particularly worried about billionaire John Sherman's finances. Yeah, the, the Hunters, they, they lost some money this year, but they're going to find ways to get it back. The, I did see there was a report, uh, some uh, tweet, I don't, and, and I think there are some, some, been some grumbling about this for a while, but that baseball has already put out a request for a proposal for 10 companies about whether or not they'd like to advertise on player uniforms in the near future. Um, there's been talk that Fox Sports Kansas City and all the other Fox Sports networks are going to start um, offering pretty quickly ways for for viewers to gamble online uh, during games. Uh, and, and surely baseball will want to get a piece of that action as well. Uh, there is going to be a, expansion seems it's overdue at this point. I think they're, you know, if they can find two, two ownership groups and, and there are already a couple that have already stepped up to the plate that are interested in Nashville and Portland, uh, you know, and Montreal as well. Uh, I'm sure they could get uh, some lucrative, expansion fees from someone so yeah they're going to make that money back so uh, and maybe john sherman is kind of taking the the long view like i'm going to own this team for a while i'm taking a big hit right now uh you know i'll make that money back also and i think david lesky's made this point a couple times the fact they have so many people in their ownership group means that no one person is kind of taking it on the chin uh, uh, you know you say john sherman the billionaire you know i don't think he owns like uh, you know a substantial I mean, I think he may he may own a majority share, but I don't think he like owns a bill, you know, close to a billion dollars of this team. I think it's like dispersed among like the thirty people, whatever is in the in the group. So no one person has kind of had to take on this law these losses, which is kind of a good thing for for the Royals. So you know, I think it's 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 a pretty encouraging sign, especially considering that he came from the Cleveland Indians ownership group, which you know the Indians are a, a model franchise in many respects, in that they're kind of always in it and they're always kind of. Um, you know, uh, going to have a sustainable approach where they're kind of always developing talent, but they also are very uh, frugal because <laughs> a lot of that comes with frugality. And, um, you know, a lot of times you see them trade players uh, away that are quite popular with fans. And so uh, it may be John Sherman uh, will end up doing that too, but, but at least early on we can see that he at least is willing to invest a little bit into this club. It's just Mike Minor right now, but um, I think at this at this point, when every pretty much everyone else in baseball is kind of cutting back, um, I think it's a pretty encouraging sign. I don't know, well, Sean, do you have any thoughts on John Sherman uh, kind of putting some money up for this team uh, in this off season? Um, no, not really. Um, I mean, I guess we'll see if it's indicative of what they what he does going forward. Um, you know. I don't know how I, so I think it's, there's like kind of competing idea where we talked about before. In fact, I think Max, you and I have written a fairly long and um, tumultuous article about it, um, about how kind of teams hide their, their earnings and the crux of that, or the kind of the, the, if we want to get into the accounting drudgery of it, um, as a new owner, he can kind of depreciate a whole bunch of the payroll that he just inherited. Um, so there's kind of a bit of that to where he can spend a, he, he has the ability to spend a bunch and, and kind of offset that spending um, through, excuse me, offset some of the revenue through spending and depreciation of this new payroll he's inherited. But on the same side, I think that, you know, when you have a big outlay 
Uh, and, you know, obviously buying a team is a large outlay for a person. Not, not that I have any experience in that. Um, but I think that there's probably, you just, you know, you bought a brand new car. You probably aren't, you know, going to go dine out necessarily for maybe a week or so just to kind of save some spending. Um, so I think, I think it remains to be seen what exactly is going to happen. Um, but, you know, you had pointed out this is, this is the first multi-year, multi-year deal, right? Since, um, uh, Jason Hamill, yep. is that correct? Since 2017. Yeah. yeah. So, one, that's a good sign. At least they're handing out some money. Two, hopefully it's better than the Jason Hamill deal. So <laughs> it's it's win it's win win depending on that second win if it's better than Jason Hamill. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's a deal you want to have anyone compare your your your, your contract to. But yeah, uh, hopefully this will turn out a little bit better. Uh, and you know, we'll hope for good things with Mike Miner. Uh, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about uh, non-tender decisions this week, including Michael Franco. Well, Wednesday evening is the deadline to tender or non-tender players that are arbitration eligible, but not yet eligible for free agency. The Royals uh, had eight players eligible for arbitration this year. They've already signed uh, a couple of them to to deals. Franchi Cordero, Jesse Hahn, Jacob Junis all signed deals uh, on Tuesday evening. Uh, that leaves Brad Keller, Hunter Dozier, and Alberto Mondesi, who are all certainly be uh, tendered contracts. Uh, Jorge Soler is probably going to be tendered. Um, you know, he is the home run champ from 2019, but he also will have a high price tag. And in, in these, in this market, you never quite know. Uh, but probably the the most um, uh, the the guy that has the most has most a jeopardy of being non-tendered is Michael Franco. Uh, Franco had a decent year this year. He had 271. 321 on base, 457 slug, eight home runs, played in all 60 games. Uh, by wins above replacement, he was sixth among all third basemen, according to fan graphs. Um, but uh, Dayton Moore had a quote uh, this week that I thought was particularly telling. He said, it's likely that we move on from certain players because our financial expectations doesn't align with what we can do in other areas based on this market. Which seems to me he, what he's saying is that Michael Franco... It's probably going to get seven, eight million dollars uh, through the arbitration process. When on the open market, in this open market, when teams are cutting back, he's probably going to get far less than that. Or we can get a comparable player for far less than that. So, Matthew. That being said, do you expect Michael Franco to be non-tendered tomorrow? I think it's certainly a possibility. Uh, I was going to non-tender Franco uh, in the sim that we did. Um, but somebody swooped in and offered a trade offer and I was like, yeah, sure. You can, you can have him. I didn't even look at, uh, honestly, I didn't even look at the trade offer. I was like, okay, I was going to not turn to him anyway. Um, I just thought that was amusing. Uh, I think they, they certainly could. The thing about Franco that you have to think about is a lot. He generated a lot of his value last year from, from his pretty good defense. But when you look at defensive statistics, Defensive statistics take a longer time to stabilize than offensive statistics and to show uh, the, uh, the underlying talent level that's going on. And Franco has a really long track record of being a bad defender at third base um, and a very, very short track record of being a, a decent to good defender at first base. And I think the Royals are probably looking at him and looking, you know, he had a good couple of months at third base, but that happens. You know, even bad players, bad defensive players can have a good couple of months in the field. I think they're probably looking at him and saying, you know, his defense probably isn't sustainable over a long term. And this year he had a breakout season, but he didn't really get on base enough to be much more than a league average bat. 
So I I think that the Royals could very easily say to themselves, you know what, we can we can non-tender him and either re-sign him later or sign someone else who can basically do what we think he'll be able to do going forward. Um, when when Franco first started playing, I was I was convinced that I was not going to like him because he like he, he muffed a ball like in his like one of the first times I, I saw him on defense this year. Um, and I just thought to myself, oh no, it's just going to be one of these things. He did pretty well, but I think his absolute ceiling going forward is maybe a league average uh, player in, in overall production. And his downside is a lot lower than that because he's not a great defender. And if he isn't hitting for power, he's simply not producing any offense because he's not you know, doing it on the base pads and he's not getting on base in the first place. So I think the Royals definitely could do that. I, If they do non-tender him, it'd be interesting to see what they do if they also don't re-sign him. Uh, they have Kelvin Gutierrez, who I, I would kind of like to see get some playing time at third base. But then it's kind of thin because if Gutierrez goes down with an injury, then like, what, what do you do? Do you put Merrifield there? Do you, you know, do you put Lopez there I and move Merrifield to second base? Like there's, that that's not really a great option. So I think it's going to be Franco or someone like Franco this year. It's just going to be interesting to see what, what, what shakes out, but I would not be surprised at all. If the Royals non-tendered Franco, they, they, they raised the possibility today of, Possibly moving Hunter Dozier back there, which I it, that's that makes me think this is all kind of a bluff to get to non-tender Franco or get him to sign at the price they want because I don't really feel like the alternatives are that great if they really you know and they're they're acting like they want to improve the team next year so I don't think they're going to walk into next year with Calvin Gidier as a third base who I liked him at one point I think the ship's kind of sailed he's 26 now. Um, he's just kind of his. He missed his boat due to injuries, which which sucks. Um, and I don't know. Maybe he'll get a chance, but um, I don't feel like he's really high on their list to be at third base next year. Um, I don't think they really want to move Dozier back to third base. To be honest, I think they'd like to set him at first base and kind of not worry about that position anymore. Um, so I kind of feel like this is bluffing a little bit. But I, that doesn't mean he won't be non-tendered. I, I think he could be non-tendered, uh, and they'll bring him back. Um, you know, the other thing is there, there aren't a lot of free agent options. It's like Justin Turner, who is probably going to be priced out and who's probably going to want to play for contender. There's Marvin Gonzalez, who's okay. Uh, I'm not sure I'd be that um, encouraged about him, his bat going forward. And then, you know, maybe you could try Tommy LaStella, uh, who, who does did put up a really good on-base percentage last year. And the Royals have said they wanted uh, they want on-base guys. He would be definitely be an on-base guy. And I think he'd be affordable. So maybe they go after him. But if you don't get him, I don't know what do you do at third base. So um, I don't know. Like Sean, if you were running the Royals, would you be tendering a contract to Michael Franco? Um, I made a I, I made a commitment, a vow to myself to not talk about Chester Cuthbert anymore. So I, I have no comment on Michael Franco, who is effectively just Chester Cuthbert. Um, but no, I would not. Not for not for seven million. And same with same with me. Kelvin Gutierrez, right? I think that ship has sailed a little bit. Um, it's unfortunate he didn't, you know, get too long of a, a, a trial, but you know, he also has to earn that himself. Um, I could see maybe so like Lucius Fox, who they just, um, traded for, he had some time in double a, 
I could see maybe that, like if they did non-tender him, maybe give Fox a shot. I mean, they didn't, you know, they didn't, they didn't give up much for him, but you know, they gave up enough that it could be worth a shot uh, of seeing. Um, Eric Mejia is still kind of kicking around down there. Not a particularly good hitter, but he could be one of those types. And um, he's he is on the forty man. I think he's on the forty man. Um, I'm certain he's on the forty man because he was optioned. Um, yeah, he was on the forty man. <clears throat> so. Uh, yeah, so maybe that's the choice that they go with. Uh, the other kind of wild card, I don't think it's likely, but uh, Kevin Merrill, who was in the Jake Diekman trade, or who was it that from the A's that that they got him for? God, him or Homer Bailey? Someone. I can't. I think. Well, I don't. Yeah, I think it was the Bailey trade. Okay. Okay. Uh, and so, I mean, maybe that could, that could be another guy. So no, I think it makes sense, particularly since Franco's kind of. I mean, what's left in there, right? You, you didn't you didn't take much to get him. He was fine. I mean, he was good. Let me correct myself. He was good. I mean, he was worth just over one win um, in sixty games. I mean, that's 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 very good for the most part. Um, but you know, it's like, can he repeat that defensively? Is he really good enough? He'll be twenty eight. I don't know. I think it makes sense to move on. You know, he he ended up being quite as bad as I thought he would be, um, given how poorly he was in twenty nineteen. Um, but I think that there's other things, particularly for eight million. You know, it, it, someone had pointed out um, today, not pointed out, but someone had made the typical comment of, "Well, it's not your money," and I agree. And you know, I don't, I, I wouldn't turn down Franco in the sense of it's like, oh, I don't want him to get eight million dollars. It's just more so that if we're talking about a finite budget, then I would like those eight million dollars, you know, appropriated to different spots. And I definitely don't want eight million dollars of Franco to be spent, or excuse me, to not be spent on someone else because they had to spend it on uh, Franco. Yeah, and, and he, he may get less than eight million. We don't know. I mean, I think eight million is kind of a, the top amount that people think he could get through the arbitration process. He could get his little six or you know seven or million dollars. <coughs> um, you know, I, I, Franco isn't like my favorite kind of player, but you know he was pretty solid last year, and I would move on from him if there was like a decent um, alternative. If they felt like, you know, they had a really good shot at signing Tommy LaStella, I'd say, okay, that makes sense. If they thought Hunter Dozier um, could play third base next year and they liked his defense there, and that's kind of where, you know, he could play there for until Bobby Witt Jr. was ready, then that would make some sense to me. But, yeah, Kelvin Gutierrez, the other options you mentioned, I mean, those don't seem like viable options to me. I, you know, they're not really in a position where they need to be pinching pennies. Like, like Matthew pointed out, they're in a really good financial situation where – they don't have a whole lot of um, commitments, uh, even this year. Um, so they could probably afford to overpay by a million or two on a guy like Franco just to kind of keep a, a regular bat in the lineup, a major league quality bat at third base. Um, now, if there's someone out there that, you know, through a trade that they think they can get, then I'd go in that direction. I don't know if you want to do that, knowing that Bobby Witt Jr. will be up in the next, you know, in the near future. But um, so, you know, I think Franco... You really, you just need a stopgap there until Witt's ready. And and Franco, he's kind of what you want out of a stopgap. He's, um, you know, he's not. You don't have to commit to him for a long time. Um, he's a guy. He's you know, he's a major league quality player. Um, but you don't. You know, I don't think he's ever gonna. I don't think he's gonna play well enough that you're gonna feel like you have to extend him or anything like that. So, you know, as a stopgap, I think he's perfectly fine. So I I'd probably tender him, but I can I can definitely see the case for non-tendering him in this market. I mean, I think uh, there there may. I mean, we may very well see a lot of 
uh, a couple third basemen getting on tendered that the Royals may feel are better options or, or maybe cheaper options than Franco. So we'll have to see what they do, and we'll we'll find out uh, Wednesday evening. I think that the deadline is seven o'clock central, so uh, we'll probably find out around then if Franco was tendered or not. Let's uh, wrap up with our Royals review reviews. Sean, do you want to kick it off this week? Yeah, I um, so I came up for some <clears throat> from uh, came up for some air from studying um, for a test that I've got here on Saturday. Actually, um, I watched the happiest season. Um, I love Christmas movies. I, I know that I know that I come off as someone who's like a pessimist and hates a lot of things. I love Christmas. I love Thanksgiving, as I pointed out earlier on. Um, but I do love Christmas and I love Christmas movies. Um, and the happiest season um, is out on Hulu. Um, it's uh, gosh, now I'm blanking on her name. Uh, Kristen Stewart, um, Mackenzie Davis. Oh, oh gosh, who else is in that? Eugene Levy's son. I don't know. Dan Levy. Dan, Dan Levy. Levy. Yeah, yeah, Dan Levy. Um, just all sorts of people are in it. The the guy who designed the ship of the Titanic in that movie Titanic, and so it's basically um, a uh, a lesbian brings home her partner. Or excuse me, brings to Christmas her partner and kind of has to hide it. And then, you know, obviously you can imagine they, she, you know, comes over the fear of her parents and, you know, uh, ultimately comes out. And it's a, it's a really actually pretty good movie um, with the Christmas appeal. You know, I could see some people not liking it, but it's funny. It's pretty solid. Um, it's a rom-com. It's a Christmas rom-com, if anything. And uh, I could see it not being everybody's tea, but I, I enjoyed it. I think it's a, I think it's a really great message too, particularly in a time where, um, LGBTQ plus uh, people are struggling, um, so I, I I thought it was good. Um, and if you've got Hulu, give you give it an hour and a half. Well, actually, it's more like two hours. So give it two hours, and um, yeah, grab some hot chocolate, uh, make some uh, popcorn necklace or whatever or string popcorn things, whatever they are, and uh, put it on. And enjoy. It was a it was, it was a good time. My wife absolutely loves uh, Christmas rom coms. So, uh, that's going oh. I guess at the top of the list. I guess I guess next time. She wants to watch something. I'll have to, I'll have to bring that out and win some brownie points, and uh, See, we'll watch that on Hulu. That one's good, but if she suckers you into the Hallmark stuff, <laughs> you're in trouble. Well, yeah, they're all pretty much the same. So, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I hope we don't get it. Well, I'll have, to, I'll have to use this as a diversion. So, uh, Matthew, what do you have for us this week? Yeah, so uh, I will be not reviewing a specific piece of, of media. I will rather be reviewing uh, and suggesting to everyone that you all buy yourself a Nintendo Switch. Um, I am uh, a, a, a pretty pretty big gamer, and I play a lot of different games and a lot of different things. Um, you know, I've got a PlayStation 4 and an Xbox One, and I've got a PC. Um, but the thing is, like, I don't understand why anybody wouldn't have a Nintendo Switch at this point. You can play pretty much any anything. You know, there's a lot of games, even like third-party, like violent games that you wouldn't think to be on like Switches. Um, you know, in the Switch's wheelhouse are there. Like you can play Witcher 3 on the Switch, which is one of the best games in the last decade or ever, really. Uh, you can play the remastered Doom, which is just, you know, killing demons, which is as hardcore as it gets. Or you can play Animal Crossing and and just you know arrange your island and and pay off your your housing loans uh, to Tom Nook. Uh, <laughs> you can do Smash Brothers. There's Zelda. There's Rocket League, which is one of my favorite games of all time. There's you know Pokemon. There is uh, Tetris. There are like 
anything that you can possibly want you have on the Switch that you can play. Um, plus, you can either play docked and uh, plugged into your TV, just like a normal console, and if you want to pick it up and go, um, you just, like, take it out of the out of the holster, so to speak. You just pick it up and you go somewhere else, and it's just it's instantaneous. You can play it uh, on a road trip or whatever. You don't have to worry about it. Um, and if you just want a, um, a portable console, you can get a uh, Switch Lite, which doesn't have the dock, and you can't put it on your TV. But it's basically, you know, just like a fancy, you know, modern Game Boy that you can bring around. So I, like, everybody in pandemic time should have a switch is is my opinion and if you don't have one get one your life will be better i promise i just want to point out that was not a sponsored content uh ad uh that was just your genuine love of the switch kind of along those lines i did see that uh super nintendo world uh is opening at universal studios japan on february 4th uh which by the way you know great to open it during pandemic although i think japan is probably handling a lot better than we are uh, but my my kids who have a Nintendo Switch and love the Mario games and and a lot of the other games on there, uh, they they are very excited about Super Nintendo World. Uh, they're going to open one. Uh, they're going to open it in Florida, Universal Studios Florida and Universal Studios Hollywood. Uh, I, I think in 2022, 2023. Uh, but they're really excited about that. They want to go to Japan. <laughs> uh, well, I don't think we're going to do that. But uh, yeah, uh, it looks pretty cool. There's an augmented reality Mario Kart game that looks uh, amazing. So, uh, yeah, Switch Switch is probably the next next best thing. Um, for my review, uh, I'm, I'm probably kind of a little bit late to this, uh, but I watched the entire Apple series of Ted Lasso uh, last week, and uh, it's just, it's delightful. Like, it's, just, it's really refreshing to see a show that's like, it's a comedy. It stars Jason Sudeikis, local boy, um, who stars as a, he's an American football coach, who you find out why, but he kind of takes the bold leap to um, to England to coach a soccer team, even though he doesn't know anything about soccer. And it seems pretty convoluted, but there are kind of reasons for, for why this happens uh, that you find out. But rather, I thought it would kind of be like a fish-out-of-water story, and it kind of is, but it, it's really very uplifting, um, and it's it's very sweet without being saccharine. It's it's very, um, I don't know, very uplifting in a way that a lot of TV shows aren't these days. Like, it's it was just kind of cool to have a male protagonist who is like a really good person, <laughs> and you want to be more like him rather than like a, a grumpy um, uh, antihero. So uh, Ted Lasso on Apple TV. I will say that Apple TV was extremely wonky for me. Like, it wouldn't play at all on my Roku, and I've had trouble with it on, even on my laptop. Uh, I use the seven day trial period and then I kind of dropped it after that because I just couldn't it was so frustrating for me maybe you'll have I, other people have had better success I don't know maybe it's just me but uh, but if you do uh, get Apple TV um, definitely check out Ted Lasso it's definitely worth it and it, and there's like a Kansas City or Kansas reference in, in pretty much every episode so what's the backstory on that though what's what's you have to do with Kansas City I, I haven't seen it so Jason Sudeikis is from Kansas City. I don't know if you've heard. Oh, I knew that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and he he uh, created and wrote, I think, a lot of the show. And the character is from Kansas City. So, so Ted Lasso, he's a football coach at Wichita State, but he's from Kansas City originally. And so there are a lot of references to Arthur Bryant's and barbecue. And um, he mentions at one point his elementary school. And I think one of the teachers there 
which I only know because a lot of people on Twitter are like, oh, I had her too. Uh, yeah. So if you're there, are a lot of there are a lot of more deep cuts, but you'll you'll see like he wears a bunch of T-shirts from Kansas City uh, or Kansas City related shirts. Uh, so it's it's kind of cool point. You know, you kinda, they're like Easter eggs you can point out. So yeah, uh, definitely check it out. And support, hey, support a local actor that's trying to do good, right? Well, that'll do it for us this week. Uh, thanks to Sean and Matthew for being on the show, and thanks to our readers and listeners for visiting our site. And we'll talk to you next time. Hey!